when you face those problems, you have a couple choices, right? You can say, these problems are too big for me and I can't solve them. Or you can say, these problems are going to persist unless I do something about them. And when you make the latter choice to say, I'm going to do something about it, you then need a skill set to approach those problems. Hello, and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the show, we have Dr. Chirar Mate. He is a medical doctor and researcher. He is also the president and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. The IHI, as it's known, is a world-leading organization which uses improvement science to advance and sustain better health outcomes across the world. So let's begin. Dr. Chidar Mate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, before we jump into your experience as a leader at the IHI, as well as your area of expertise in quality improvement, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and journey into healthcare. Everyone, I think, has a different way of, of coming into the field. Everyone's got their own story, so it's a great place to start. Mine you know, began very early on. I was a, a kid growing up with uh, both parents, immigrants uh, from India to the U.S. Uh, I grew up in sort of central New Jersey. Uh, my father was a pediatrician, is a pediatrician, and still practicing now, even into his late 70s. And my mother worked in the hospital as a microbiologist, as a lab, you know, in the laboratory. And so I was around healthcare my whole life. I, I remember, you know, early days rounding with my dad, you know, on the pediatric wards of the hospital, you know, so I was around it a lot in, in, my, in my youth. But there was also an, another phenomenon that was taking place, which was that my parents were recent immigrants to the U.S. And anytime they had enough money saved up to make a trip back home to India, we would go back. Um, and uh, I would get to contrast my my upbringing with the lives of my cousins uh, who were, you know, a similar socioeconomic class in India, but also everyone around you in, in Bombay. And the sort of sense of inequity was very obvious, even at a very early age. And I suppose that made the biggest difference in my life, you know, on some level. It wasn't just about medicine or healthcare. It was about this sort of broader set of issues that was affecting people's lives. I knew that was kind of the, the place that I wanted to work most. Uh, was on that issue of social uh, inequity that was observable, easily observable in the context in which I was having the chance to visit. But whether I was going to approach that problem from medicine or not was uncertain. You know, I studied history actually in college, not the medical field. Um, and the reason I studied history was I was interested in stories of uh, communities as they encountered political systems and other things that would construct their experience of health. And I was writing about Haitians in the U.S. and their experience with HIV infection um, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, I came across the work of uh, Dr. Paul Farmer, who, uh, of course, many of your listeners will know. I wasn't even at, in his university at the time, but Paul agreed. I contacted him kind of randomly. So one thing I'd encourage your listeners to do is when you find somebody inspiring, reach out to them because who knows what will happen. Uh, but I reached out to Paul and um, he wrote me back. And uh, we began a kind of friendship over many years uh, of mentorship. He agreed to advise my senior thesis uh, as an undergrad. And I went to work for Partners in Health soon thereafter. And it was there that I you know, encountered economists, anthropologists, uh, you know, folks, uh, sociologists, as well as physicians, and how they were working in very under-resourced communities. And I realized it was the physicians that I most wanted to be like. That was really kind of the, the moment, I think, actually much later in my career than I think a lot of people uh, 
make choices around these things. But uh, it, was, it wasn't until after I graduated college that I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. How did you find doing an undergraduate in history and being around uh, multidisciplinary people then went on to shape your approach to healthcare? Almost every problem is in, in life, is whether it's in healthcare or not, is a complex problem, right? Humans make complicated problems, you know, on some level. And, you know, in order to solve complex problems, you often need multiple angles um, to solve those problems. And some of those you get through partnership and through colleagueship with other parties. You know, I will never be a fully trained economist, um, but so I need people who understand, in my case, health economics to advise and participate and collaborate on certain things. But I like to say, you know, there's every healthcare problem is multidimensional and you need as many of those dimensions represented around the table as you can as you can assemble. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can find someone uh, or if you yourself can have more than one of those skills or attributes yourself um, in your toolbox, uh, then you're, you've got an advantage in terms of trying to find a solution to a complex problem. So, you know. Any problem, they think of uh, waiting times in the emergency room, that's a complex problem. It might seem simple on some level, but it involves clinical challenges, it involves queuing theory, it involves reliability science, you know, and those are things, health economics. You need all of those disciplines represented at the table to be able to come up with a reasonably useful solution to that problem. If you can possess the clinical knowledge plus, you know, any one of those other areas, you've got an advantage um, in terms of trying to solve that problem. So I think, uh, you know, in general, my response to this is that you need as many, as many tools in your toolbox as you can assemble in a, and, and then find others who have the tools that you don't have and, you know, build relationship with those individuals uh, to help you solve these kinds of complicated problems. Yeah. I just wanted to underscore the idea of the complexity in healthcare Um not always is the cause and effect tightly coupled. Um, it can mean that there are many ambiguous uh, gray area type scenarios where something just hasn't been seen before or when an action is taken, um, second and third order effects were uh, unanticipated, which can make these um, issues just so, so challenging. And that's why, as you mentioned, having diverse skill sets on teams is really helpful for us to, to uncover solutions. I'm also hearing that clinical professionals aren't just the gatekeepers on contribution to healthcare, which uh, sometimes can um, create create blind spots. Really, yeah, you know, I'll say two things about this. One is that um, often clinicians are not at the table. Oddly, uh, you know, you've got the business people or the the financing individuals or otherwise that are kind of in the background, kind of actually make, pulling a lot of the strings, and the clinicians and the patients who are the ones that are really experiencing. Uh, whether care is working for them or not, are often not at the table at all. So one one part of this is, you know, you'd be surprised how many, uh, you know, tables are being architected at which decisions are being made that have that are enormously consequential for how clinicians provide care or how patients experience care uh, that leave both of those parties out of the decision-making process or otherwise. You know, so again, your ability to have multiple uh, dimensions. If you're training as a clinician, nurse, doctor, social worker, pharmacist, whatever, if you're training as a clinician to be able to participate sometimes in these tables often requires an additional skill set that allows you to, you know, entry into those environments. Uh, and the other point I, would, I suppose I would make is when you're there, 
there's a, 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 you know, sometimes when clinicians are at the table, you know, I think you, you can, you may tend to, uh, not that the clinicians necessarily dominate, but that a lot, there's a lot of de- deference to that kind of expertise. And I think it's in some ways up to the clinicians to invite the other disciplines into the conversation when you're, when you're having it. And particularly highlighting the, the, the end user the, or the patient or however you want to describe you know, that individual, the consumer or the patient, the, the actually end beneficiary of all of this, that voice uh, often left out or left behind is a part that clinicians can elevate in the conversation really uh, importantly. Use your power to bring that voice in uh, so that uh, we can hear that voice very clearly in the kinds of decision-making conversations that are often taking place. Yes, it's a great point. I think one is around how we build those skills such that we can ensure mm-hmm. we're at the table and also illustrates what great leadership looks like, elevating the voices yeah. of others, of patients, of the communities whom we serve. Now, coming back to your time at Partners in Health, I wondered, were there any particularly poignant experiences that you had that shaped your approach to leadership today? Yeah, absolutely. So it was actually while I was working for Partners in Health, um, I was based in Peru at the time um, in Lima in a, a sort of shantytown north of the city called Carabaillo, uh, which is a, a very, uh, you know, it's a, it's a peri-urban slum uh, built into these uh into this, you know, mountainside with rubble everywhere and fat, not thatched roofs, tin roofed uh, housing dwellings for the people that lived there. There was a church and a clinic. That's sort of the environment that we were in. And uh, we were treating drug resistant, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, um, very complicated disease, requires multiple medications that are really old medicines, actually and pretty crude, lots of side effects for those medicines. And the treatment course can last, you know, you know, two years or longer in some cases, uh, depending on your response to the therapy. Very complicated, difficult condition. The World Health Organization, WHO, had basically said that treating this condition in resource-limited settings like we were working in was untenable. It was impossible. Had essentially confined those that got the infection to more or less palliative care and, and ultimately death. Partners Health took a different position. It said, you know, biology is biology, as, as so many people have heard Paul Farmer say in the past, and, you know, the biology of the poor and, you know, under-resourced is the same as the biology of the wealthy. And it turns out that when you treat people uh, with care, compassion, and the same medications, they respond the same way that people do in Boston or New York or San Francisco or wherever. Um, and so we took that position and we started treating, you know, patients, hundreds of patients with uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis, anti-TB meds. And uh, they were responding exactly as you'd predict, uh, John, with um, cure rates of in excess of 75%, very similar to the rates that we were getting in Boston at the same time. You know? And uh, so we were proving essentially that you know, Paul's thesis that you know, biology was biology and that people could get better in this condition if we only you know, built the programs like we had built to help do that. But we were having a problem. We were, we were in, in Carabaillo, in that place that we were working, we were getting great treatment success rates. And I was, by the way, in this time, like my, I'd finished my undergraduate time. I'd started working for Partners in Health. Um, and I was, I was a community health worker. I was helping the community health workers do directly observed therapy. Um, I was myself kind of doing directly observed therapy with some of our patients, helping them take their medicines, that kind of, that kind of work and writing and doing research uh, with the rest of the PIH team. But um, 
we were having trouble um, scaling this program. We were very good at, at doing it in the place that we had done it in Lima, in Carabaio. But when we but other people needed it, we had long waiting times, um, huge waiting lists to get into this program. People were traveling from all over the country to come to the gates of this one clinic in Carabaio to get you know this kind of treatment, which was offered nowhere else in the country. And we had no way of replicating the program to other parts. We had tried it several times, replicating in different parts of the city of Lima, in the outskirts of Lima, and elsewhere in Peru. But we had been sort of unsuccessful at replicating the program. And that's when uh, this was another uh, founder of Partners Now, Jim Kim. Jim Kim and Paul invited one of their colleagues, Don Berwick, um, to come to Lima. And Don um, was a professor of pediatrics at Harvard. Um, alongside of uh, Paul and Jim. And uh, Don had been working on systems thinking and how to make systems behave uh, better, how to improve them systematically. And it was, it was, you know, Jim and Paul's thesis or notion that maybe the problem wasn't a clinical problem, but actually was a problem of the system that they were trying to replicate this program into in other parts of the city and in other parts of the country. Uh, Don came down. I was sort of his translator, if you will, for uh, a week. Um, and I learned about the kinds of questions Don was asking about how systems work through his point of view, his, his lens. He was asking about what we were aiming for, how to make changes in our system, what were the barriers, you know, all the kinds of root cause analysis. He was doing things that I now do when I talk to people, but I didn't know it at the time, right? I was just doing the, the duty of listening to Don and translating his questions and translating the answers back to him. And, uh, you know, Don um, helped us design uh, what became the first uh, learning collaborative, as we called it, learning and treatment collaborative in Lima. We had 41 teams from all over the, the city uh, who were trying to replicate the Carabaio drug resistant TB program in their environments. And then we had, very importantly, a Team 42. And Team 42 was from the government, was the Ministry of Health. And the job of Team 42 was to remove whatever barrier was being put in place by the government to prevent the scale-up of this program. And so that involved things like changing treatment guidelines. Remember, at this time, this disease was not thought to be treatable in this environment. So the clinical guidelines in Peru said, don't treat someone that you uh, found to have this disease. And so the Ministry of Health had to change that treatment guideline. They had to make it easy for the medications to come through the ports of Lima to be, to be uh, in, in the airport and the ports to be imported into the country. We had to set up a reference laboratory. There was all kinds of logistical hurdles that the Ministry of Health team had to solve. Um, and so we ran this program several years. Uh, to my knowledge now, it was the first uh, collaborative learning collaborative that we has ever been run in a lower middle income country. And it was, it was wildly successful, not just because of our effort at, at, at what, be, what was known as the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, the place that I now work, but also because of the really hard work of the Partners in Health team who were helping to mentor and coach all of those, all those places. But that experience, you know, learning that it wasn't just the biology of our patients that was the obstacle to progress and improvement of whole population health, but in fact, the obstacles that governments put in place or that our systems architected to prevent us from doing this very doable project. Uh, that experience really was eye-opening for me. It was the experience that I think of as being the sort of transition point in my 
in my thinking, uh, you know, to not only do I need clinical skills, but I also need to understand how systems work. Um, and I need to not only develop the skills to treat patients, but also the skills to treat systems. Um, and uh, it's the, that combination of things that became sort of the, the crucible for me to shape the rest of my career. One piece I'll pick up on there is how systems aren't neutral. Um, it can be really easy to think that the system's been around forever and these are just the way things are. But it's only once you start asking some really good questions, you can peel back the, the drivers and the why of the system and then identify opportunities to actually change it. Yeah, no system is neutral. I think that's a very good point, that there's no, there's no such thing as a neutral system. Systems are all built by people, right? And, um, and they're, they're built by people. They're structured with our own biases and our own belief structures. We build those into our systems. We replicate them in our systems. Um, and then we, uh, and they, absolutely right, they can be improved by people just as well, you know. And uh, we have this, we also have this other, there's this other persistent mythology, which are systems are more reliable than people. Um, and the point is that people build systems. Um, and so that in some senses, systems can be more reliable than people but they can also perpetuate or in increase the reliability of something that prevents, in this case, you know, access to medications that were life-saving. You know, so by changing the premise, by asking a different question, we can create a, an important innovation, not only in clinical care, but also in how systems behave. Reflecting on Dr. Paul Farmer's biology as biology point really illustrates to me how having core values underpin underpinning your approach to leadership can be such a powerful, important position to have, particularly when you face uh, tough decisions, um, because it helps guide your decision making and sets expectations of yourself uh, and of, of others around you. You nailed that um, spot on, Jono. I mean, I, you know, we, I teach a course now with our, so the uh, fast forwarding many, many years from that, you know, year, that moment, 24 years ago now when I was sitting in that clinic and discovering systems change. But, you know, many, many years from that point, I, I now teach a course with the IHI fellows, um, the, uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the, the organization that Don Berwick, who came to visit us in Peru, had founded, uh, that I now lead. Uh, that institute has a fellowship program. And that fellowship program is typically for mid-career professionals who are at a pivot point in their career. You know, these are folks that have been leading some aspect of their health system for a long time, um, and now they're about to take the next step to leading an even bigger part of their their system or their you know whatever they're doing. And um, you know, one of the, the course that I teach to, with them or the session that I lead with them is is about values-based leadership. Um, and your point is exactly right. We have a tendency to try to change behaviors, uh, you know, to alter a particular behavior. Um, and if you think about that drug-resistant TB program, you know, the, the behavior, if you will, would be providing a certain set of medications to, a, you know, a poor person, you know, that has drug-resistant TB. That's a, that's a behavior of the clinical system in that case. But underpinning that behavior um, and whether or not access to those medications becomes possible or not is a mindset. And the previous mindset had been poor people can't do this, um, do this, undergo this treatment regimen. It's not possible for them. And the mindset that we were bringing in in that early stage project was this is absolutely possible. 
But underpinning the mindset is a set of values, right? And the values in the first model was that, you know, there it was essentially a value of inequity is okay, right? Uh, this is permissible, that, you know, this is life, that, uh, you know, the poor don't uh, merit the kind of treatment that um, the rich merit, um, something along those lines. And the mindset that Partners in Health was approaching this from and that IHI was approaching this from is that's nonsense, right? And, and, you know, inequity is unjust, uh, unconscionable. Um, and that equity is, is in some ways all that matters, uh, that we need to create uh, more equity in the world. And so that, that value system, you know, helps to shape the mindset then that says, actually, anyone can receive this, this treatment and get better from it, which then shapes a behavior, which is let's deliver this medication to these patients in a timely fashion. But without that, the behavior is unsustainable. If you don't change the value system, if all you did was change the, the behavior of, without affecting the mindset or the value system, then the behavior will be ephemeral. All the, all, the, uh, all the concerns about sustainability of whatever behavior or practice is often due to this primary cause, which is that we haven't actually changed the mindset or the value system uh, that underpins the behavior. So as soon as a new leader comes in, the behavior fades away and we lose the sustainability of that effort. So I, I often, you know, I often, when we're talking to these mid-career leaders who are about to take on something new, it's don't just focus on the, the artifacts of the mindset, the behaviors, but you've got to work on the mindset values that underpin those behaviors uh, fundamentally if you want to actually sustainably change the system. Now, I'd like to move our conversation towards the topics of innovation and improvement. In my mind, these skills are vital for any leader to have a really good grasp on because they enable us to, to move on from getting stuck in, in the status quo approaches and thinking that, um, you know, at, at times can perpetuate some of the problems we have. I wondered what your perspective is on innovation. The innovation is, is its own set of skills, right? Um, to be, um, and, and, and they're well-practiced. So there's a mythology around the creative genius, you know, the, the Einstein type where some you know, lightning bolt strikes them and suddenly they've got this great idea. But, you know, Edison, you know, I don't know whether Edison ever actually said this, but allegedly said that he failed at making a light bulb. I didn't make a light bulb. I failed at making a light bulb a thousand times or whatever number of times he said. And the point of that is that innovation is a practice. It's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a, you know, innate feature of a human, you know, some are innovative, some are not. That notion is nonsense. You know, it's everyone can become an innovator, anyone can become an innovator uh, with some practice, you know, in essence, it takes a lot of practice and the most innovative people like the most brilliant musicians or the most brilliant uh, basketball players have shot a, you know, a million free throws, right? And, and you know, whether Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell is right about the 10,000 hours or not, I'm not really sure, but the, the notion is it takes a lot of practice um, to be innovative. It takes hours of essentially applying a certain mind frame to problems that you tackle. I think one characteristic of the innovator is to be a little fearless, you know, to not, um, to, to approach whatever problem it is with curiosity and, you know, a certain set of, um, a certain kind of belief, uh, if you will, going back to values and mindsets, a certain set of beliefs that, you know, and values that any problem is amenable to to innovation, that you're that you can apply yourself to any problem um, and try to find a new way. 
with that effort. So I think that is a clear uh, sort of value structure within that. There's disciplines around innovation. There's sort of ways of practicing it. There's uh, IHI uses a methodology called the model for improvement, which is to discern a name, which is usually driven by a consumer need or requirement, you know, establishes a measure so that you can establish whether you're getting to that name and then identify a series of perhaps small or big changes to the system uh, that's in play that will allow you to understand or make progress towards that aim. And then you use an iterative learning cycle called the plan, do, study, act cycle, uh, which is now fairly well known as an iterative cycle of learning. And if I look at all the design methods, uh, the IDEO method, for example, um, uh, or you know, human-centered design approaches, which are often classically associated with some of the most innovative things coming out of Silicon Valley or um, where you are at Stanford, um, you know, these, these methods, they all have um, at their core some kind of rapid cycle or iterative cycle of learning that allows you to test very quickly your hypotheses against a stated ambition or a user-defined need. Um, and that is the essence of human-centered design. It's, you know, I think it's worth getting these skills in your toolbox. You know, again, it's one of the skills you'll need around the table to solve a complex problem. This, this notion of design thinking or uh, in, innovation skill sets will be necessary um, sitting around the table. And I would venture to suggest that they're relatively easy for people in clinical life to get uh, because, you know, hypothesis testing and experimentation is native to the clinician, right? So clinicians are, are readily uh, adept at testing things. And this idea is very fundamental to how we practice as physicians. I'm an internist. So I, you know, if a patient comes into my office with a pneumonia and I treat them on empiric antibiotics that are specific to the lo local antibiotic sensitivities, you know, I start them on a medication, they leave, they don't get better. What do I do? I switch medicines to a different medicine, try that for a little while. If that doesn't work, then maybe it's not a pneumonia at all. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, or maybe it's emphysema, or maybe it's something else, you know, like maybe there's a... Uh, what this patient is experiencing wasn't a pneumonia to begin with. Um, and so I think that's kind of at the heart of kind of what we do as physicians, you know, and we, or clinicians in general, we, we're always kind of testing things to try to see what will work, you know, using our knowledge base to guide us. But the reason that I think it's actually fundamentally human-centered design and innovation skills are kind of, they're, they're very, they're very close to, to us as clinicians. So Acquiring these skills are, are typically not that difficult for, for clinicians because it's uh, it's pretty foundational to what we do. Yeah, and I would just add that my experience of quality improvement was it was like a little bit of a superpower. You know, you learn this this framework that can help you to be empowered and make a, a meaningful impact on your clinical environment. Um, prior to this, it was quite easy to be apathetic and passive uh, in your workplace because of just how busy you are and, and how complex it is. Yeah, it's so important right now, John. I mean, if you listen to the way that things people are talking about the workforce at the moment in our clinical environments, it's very, you know, beaten down. You know, it's very uh, downtrodden. It's a, just a tough time right now. We, we're understaffed um, in many of our clinical units and uh, locations. Uh, people are stressed. They've come through a couple of years of pandemic time, you know, uh, just feeling very low. And 
all around us are systems challenges, right? All around us, every day, I'd venture to guess that any clinician that goes to the hospital or spends a minute in the clinic um, will will be able to experience a system problem, you know, uh, almost immediately. Or if you're a patient, you know, you don't have to be a clinician. If you're a patient, you will experience system challenges. And, and people that are both clinicians and patients or have the experience of being a patient even for a day will see the system's problems readily when you go through a hospital or a clinic environment um, very, very quickly. And when you face those problems, you have a couple choices, right? You can say, these problems are too big for me and I can't solve them. Or you can say, these problems are going to persist unless I do something about them. And when you make the latter choice to say, I'm going to do something about them, you then need a skill set to approach those problems. And as you're saying, the quality improvement skill set is a very useful skill set to solve systems problems. Just as I discovered in Peru, you know, 20 plus years ago, uh, whenever I'm working with trainees now, uh, it's like eye-opening to them to discover this, that systems are actually mutable, that they can be changed, that they're not done to you. They're created by us, you know, and we can alter the DNA of systems just like we can, uh, you know, in many cases alter the course of care for our patients by virtue of, you know, small scale testing and, and, and learning. Yeah. So for anyone looking to start out in this space, obviously the IHI website has a number of courses and resources that you can look into, as well as reaching out to many hospitals who will have uh, quality improvement uh, programs or teams to, to check out. Yeah, 100% agree. There, every hospital in the country will have a quality, a quality improvement team. I do think that quality improvement teams, I'll just make this comment, that um, I think that quality has has in some ways become pigeonholed as narrowly focused on, in some ways, what the Joint Commission thinks or does, what we're responsible for, for quality measures, you know, whether that's hospital-acquired infections or other hospital-acquired conditions. But, you know, the truth is that at its foundation, and I just encourage your listeners to think of it this way, quality improvement is is simply put a change management methodology. It wasn't even designed for healthcare, right? It was designed for other industries, automotive industries, the airline industry, other things. Um, and it, it's being applied to healthcare in actually a fairly narrow way. But you, listener, can, can use this method, this simple change management method for almost anything in your life, whether it's training to run a marathon or you know, trying to get your kids to school on time or get your kids to bed on time or um, taking something in your clinical environment, you know, like a scheduling problem or a waiting time for your patients or otherwise and making that better. So I just want to encourage you to think about quality improvement, not as the thing that is focused on preventing a central line bloodstream infection. And that's the only thing we use it for, but rather as your method, think of it as your method for creating a system change. And that system change could be anything that is bothering you um, right now about how the system practices or behaves, whether that's inequities, whether that's patient safety problems, whether it's waiting times, whether it's your own clinic schedule. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what the problem is. It, this method can help you actually solve for any problem that you're facing. Now, scaling an intervention uh, bore out of quality improvement can be a real challenge. Uh, you even mentioned it with the work that you did at Partners in yeah. Health. So how can this be overcome? So scale is probably, you know, alongside of sustainability, one of the biggest challenges that people experience um, in any kind of health system transformation effort. 
And there's a couple of ways of thinking about scale, um, in my view. One is you've got to have the right set of changes. And the changes have to be simple, observable, measurable, you know, um, types of changes, changes that are clearly register as being an advantage over this current situation. So in the case of drug-resistant TB, treating drug-resistant TB was clearly an advantage to not treating it, right? Not treating it meant patients would die within some time frame. Treating it meant that you gave them a chance at, at cure. Not 100% successful every time, but you know, in the vast majority of cases, 80 plus percent of the time, we were able to successfully treat patients. So you have to, what is the nature of the change? Is the change going to create an advantage uh, for, for your patients or your community or otherwise? What's the nature of the system in which you're deploying this? Is this a system that's ready to adopt the change? Is it a system that's going to be resistant to adopting the change? In our case, again, we were dealing with a World Health Organization that was resisting the change, a Peruvian government that didn't have the change listed in their in their treatment guidelines, and clinical environments all over the city and country that were unprepared to treat this condition. So we had actually a fairly resistant environment in which this change was going to be deployed. So what's the nature of the change? What's the nature of the system that you're trying to deploy it in? And then what by what method will you improve the system or the change? And that's where the quality improvement methodology comes in. Iterative cycles of testing and learning to try to figure out how to change the system to become more adaptable than to the change. Team 42, that team I described earlier, we had to figure out our way. Team 42 didn't initially exist in our system. We had to realize that there were so many you know, Ministry of Health or government-related barriers that were preventing the teams from adopting the changes that were necessary. They had to create conditions that would make it possible for the clinicians in other locations to adopt the change. They had to rewrite the guidelines. They had to make it easy to obtain the medicines, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to have these three things that when we think about scaling anything, is the change workable? Is the um, system ready for it? Do we have a method for change? Either the the, the specific in, uh, initiative or the system itself. Um, once you have those things uh, in place, then you need a way of doing it. Um, and so for us, I'll give you a totally different example that's a lot more recent. We Some years ago, we uh, now in 2015, 2016, we had an experience with uh, a, a group of geriatricians. So this is here in the U.S. We, you know, we had a uh, Terry Fulmer, who's the president of the John A. Hartford Foundation, came to IHI and said, you know, we have a problem with scaling up better practice for older adults. Evidence-based geriatric practice exists. We know how to treat older adults, how to make them healthier, how to, you know, not only extend their lives, but ensure a higher quality of life. We've been researching this for three decades. We have lots of really good practices around this, but we don't, we have not reliably reaching every older adult in the United States with this, with this formula for what it would take. So we went to the literature and she was right. There were 17, you know, evidence-based practice models, you know, randomized controlled studies that documented how to make care better for older adults, whether they were inpatient, outpatient, whether they experienced mobility and functional declines, or they had medication and polypharmacy issues, whatever it was, they had, there was all these kind of methods available. When we went to a health system and we asked them, this is Kaiser Permanente, we asked Kaiser, how many of these 17 practice models are operating in your system today? They described when they went to do the survey, they found that 14 of them were active, but all of them in little pockets all over the system. None of them linking up into uh, the kind of scaled effort to improve care for older adults. When we surveyed nationally how many of these practice models were in play, we found that of the total number of older adults in the country, only about 5 to 7% of them were receiving care associated with one of these models of care. 
So a very small proportion of the older adult population was getting the best in evidence-based uh, care. So we then worked on creating a simplified model, and that model was what we call the four M's, knowing what matters to the older adult, focusing on medications, mentation or uh, delirium, dementia, and then mobility, the functional status of the older adults. We call that model the four M's. And then we started to, and then we created mechanisms for scaling it, partnering with the American Hospital Association, with the Catholic Health Association, with numerous state health associations across the country. We started scaling with CVS, with uh, miniclinics, with the Veterans Administration, where a, a number of older adults obviously get their care. Throughout the, the enterprise uh, across the United States, we started working with these organizations. And now over 3,000 clinical locations, hospitals, clinics, retail clinics, or otherwise, uh, use the 4Ms as the basis of how to provide care to an older adult patient. Uh, and by our count, millions of patients now are receiving care consistent with the 4Ms of better geriatric practice. Now we're moving into the latest stage of, of scaling, which is to ensuring that policy, you know, and practice, policy and payment aligns with uh, the 4Ms. And so that's kind of the what I think of is uh, when I think about scaling is there's always an innovation phase defining the 4Ms in the case of age friendly. There's a scale up phase where we go from you know a few sites doing this to thousands of locations doing it and millions of patients getting it. Now to the third and last stage, which is embedding this permanently in policy and in payment so that we have a durable model for success for, for essentially forever. Um, and that's kind of a combination of spread and sustainability at the last stage. But that's how we approach and think about scaling. You just mentioned how important policy changes to the success of these types of scaling-up programs. I wondered if you could elaborate a bit further on that and how we should be thinking about policy. It's such an important thing to think about. I mean, policy and you know, it's such a critical aspect of, of how we, you know, want, need to think about bringing about sustain, sustainable and systemic change. It's an unbelievably powerful lever, uh, both for good and for bad, right, on some level. It can be, it can work to help with uh, scaling effective practice. Um, it could also uh, be a big, you know, uh, uh, obstacle, as we found in that program in Lima so many years ago. Uh, ineffective policy or uninformed policy or non-evidence-based policy can also be a major barrier to progress. Um, so it's a it's an unbelievably important thing to consider and to work on. Again, when I think about that multidisciplinary table that we started our call with uh, here, our conversation with uh, Jono, you know, having people that are experts in thinking about how to address policy issues that might be present. Uh, are so valuable, especially in late stage change efforts, um, you know, where we're trying to think about how to uh, really change the environment going forward. We're working right now on, on a national health equity agenda um, and, you know, through something that we call the Rise to Health Coalition. And this is a partnership with the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, America's Health Insurance Plans. Uh, so it's uh, several pharma companies. Uh, as well as with government and regulators. And, you know, critical to this is the notion that uh, we're putting all parties around the table to try to come up with essentially consensus practice guidelines so that we can help policymakers make informed policy decisions that will help support the creation of more health equity on an ongoing basis. And that's going to be a, a vital part. You know, how policymakers respond to that is going to be really critical for us in terms of whether we can create durable, more equitable care systems in the future.
it's it's an absolutely central part of almost every large scale, um, certainly national change initiative. I'd like to now move on to your experiences as a leader at the IHI, uh, how you've managed the transition and what has it been like for you to take on such an important role in a big organization? Thank you for asking the question. I, you know, I think there's always a difference. I was within IHI. I was the chief innovation officer uh, before taking the new role of being IHI's president and chief executive a few years ago now. And, uh, you know, coming from within an organization, I think you have an advantage, you know, kind of where the opportunities lie for, for significant improvement and change. Uh, but you also have to recast yourself as the leader of the organization and not another senior person in the organization. So I think there's a bit of a, it comes with advantages, but it also has some disadvantages in, in that sense. Uh, but, you know, in general, I think that, you know, when you think about transitions, I think about you return to what you value what you are trying to accomplish. And I think of, you know, what am I trying to accomplish here in this time as being like, what, what do I want this time in leadership to be about? I'm not going to have forever in this job. So what do I want to make this time about? What do I want you know, to, to try to affect uh, differently? And the, for me, that the major thing that I've been working on for the last couple of years has been trying to make the quality improvement and the quality management universe uh, really center equity as one of its ambitions and one of its goals. Um, and in part because that's important to do, and it ties in with all of the things that you've heard me talk about from earlier in my career, uh, but but also for because of this fundamental fact, that quality improvement as a methodology was designed to reduce undesired variation in systems. It was designed to improve reliability of systems, whether it's you know, manufacturing assembly lines, you know, making them more reliable and reduce variation in those, uh, reducing variation in how aviation instrumentation was or how we fly planes, uh, reducing variation in how NASA builds its spaceships, uh, you know, or otherwise. That's foundational to the method. And by the way, quality improvement has driven all of those prior industries uh, to, to the kinds of reliability successes that you, you see regularly in the news. So therefore, um, for me, Quality improvement is actually very good at reducing variation and equity or inequities are variations that are unjust, unconscionable, actually very costly to our systems, you know, and something that we can change, just like we can change the variation that's present in other kinds of systems. And so uh, for me, the big, you know, one of the things I came into this job trying to do um, was, was trying to connect the dots around quality and equity and make sure people saw that as being critically important. Um, I also wanted to help uh, make IHI the place to go for large-scale change. I wanted us to be seen as the place to go when you had a, a problem of, you know, evidence to action mismatches, you know, where the evidence was obvious that we knew how to take better care of older adults, where the evidence was obvious that hospitals and health systems could do something about climate change, where the evidence is obvious that we can do better with uh, sepsis, for example. I wanted us to be the place that people would come to, to help build national initiatives, you know, at, at the scale of the whole country, uh, where we could start tackling those kinds of problems um, overall. So, and, and I think we've been successful at that. We're working on health equity at national scale. We're working on patient safety at national scale. We're working on, we're going to be working on climate and health at national scale. Um, and we're working on this problem of aging at national scale. So I'm I'm quite pleased that we're that we're becoming represented as this kind of um, 
organization that sees the whole picture and how to take ideas from what we know works to everyone doing it reliably everywhere. Um, and that's, I think, the, the other major thing that I wanted to try to accomplish in this role. So these are the, I think, as you make these transitions, think about, you know, what you value and what you're here for. Um, and, you know, always return to those, uh, those ideas um, as, you, as you kind of lean into your leadership role. The last thing I'll say is this is a time for a different kind of leader. Um, I, I think we used to have people uh, who, had, who were obviously very talented, very bright, high IQ, whatever. Um, and then we had people that were very, a combination of intelligent, but also curious. And my predecessor, Maureen Bisignano, calls that CQ, curiosity quotient. But I think today's leaders need to have a third dimension, which is empathy. You need to be intelligent, you need to be curious and innovative, but you also need to be empathetic because your workforce needs you in a different way than I think leaders in the past were needed to show up for their workforce. Work and life are very blurry now. People are working from home as they have been for the last couple of years. You know, that these boundaries are very, they're not very well defined. And so being an empathetic leader during a really challenging time for people is, uh, is I think, a critical dimension of what your leadership should look like. Picking up on that framing of equity is really interesting. Uh, seeing it as a more of a variation problem and thus a quality problem is perhaps a way to also deflate some of the stigma around some of these types of issues and get us to just really focus in on on the causes and, and finding the solutions. I think also what you've pointed to is, is not only a moral obligation, but it can also be a financial one too. Yeah, we can do both. I mean, it's, it's you can make the argument many different ways for why the system needs to be different. Uh, whether it's true financial costs, better quality is less costly. You know, better better or more equity is less costly. There's estimates that show that we lose $320 billion a year to inequity. I mean, that's a lot of money um, and something that's readily correctable by the kinds of things that we've been doing. So, uh, you know, not only is it not only is it morally unconscionable, and you can make that argument, uh, not only do we lose a lot of human lives, you can make that argument. Uh, not only is it the right thing to do, you can make that argument, but it's also costly. It's also very financially costly for our system to preserve the kinds of inequities that we have um, in our system. So with all of this incredible work going on and all the challenges within healthcare, I wondered, um, how is it that you keep yourself uh, well and, you know, make sure that you don't burn out? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I get asked this question a fair amount actually these days. So I think there's a lot of empathy for leaders too at this time. And I would, ex I'd express that empathy for leaders as well. I think it's a, it's not only a tough time to be a frontline healthcare worker, but it's also a tough time to lead systems because you're up against some things that are pretty challenging. And there's a lot of demands on you as a leader to, to, as I just said, be empathetic and curious as well as, you know, uh, you know, lead your systems with intelligence. Um, I think, you know, you've got to find your, your places that you've, you've connected and you recharge. You know, for me, that's a combination of my family who are incredibly supportive and wonderful and, um, you know, being outside, being in nature, you know, as I drive into the mountains or something for a weekend trip uh, with the family, I can just feel the stress decline as I'm heading off on a Friday afternoon. You know, just I can feel that that experience very clearly, and I, I, it registers for me. And I think that's a thing that people have to do. But also enjoy what you're doing, and if you're not enjoying what you're doing, don't do it. You know, honestly, there are lots of choices that we make every day. Um, I love what I do um, at IHI. I love the challenges that we have uh, that we face, 
um, the problems that we're, we're willing to take on and lean into. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I think it's, I love the fact that we're not, we're, we have no lack of ambition when we're trying to tackle a big problem. So, uh, you know, trying to solve the problem of creating better care for older adults, trying to solve the problem of health equity, you know, climate and health intersections. These are all big problems. And, you know, that keeps you kind of curious and keeps you working and keeps, keeps the innovation spirit very high, which is the part that I love the most. I really like that point there about passion and about being passionate about what you do. Um, and also just to add that, um, you know, if your passion goes away or, or isn't there, then, then it's okay to change course. Mm-hmm. Now, my final question is, would you have any advice for your younger self when you reflect back on your career? You know, I, I feel very fortunate in what I've been able to, you know, have the opportunity to do. And uh, I feel like I've really loved what I've done all the way through my life. Um, and so, I, I mean, I would give myself and any version of my younger self the advice to keep pursuing the things that you really love doing because it'll lead you to where I am at the moment. Also, I, I would give my younger self the advice of maybe experiment a bit more. I think I, you know, I, I think it's a good thing to try to tackle new things periodically on a, on a regular basis, try to challenge yourself, try to learn about some new things, new, new levers, new, new um, opportunities that might face you just to broaden your tool set, you know, as uh, suggesting to all of you who are listening here. Um, But that's, I think, a critical dimension of all of this. Before you go, I understand that you've got your own podcast. Can you tell me a bit about that? It's called Turn On The Lights. The idea behind this podcast is that we're, we know there's a lot of things about American healthcare that's very confusing, that's almost deliberately confusing on some level, uh, that's uh, hard to understand, opaque. Um, and we want to try to dig in on some of those issues. Why do medicines cost what they cost? Why does a hospital bill so expensive? Why, uh, you know, why is CVS buying Oak Street Health, right? What What's going on with private equity in healthcare? You know, some of these things that most people... Um, don't really have a lot of clarity or insight into. We're trying to help, as the title of the podcast suggests, turn on the lights um, on some of these facets of American medicine that are hard to understand. So I hope you'll join us at uh, Turn on the Lights at some point. Wow, that sounds like a great podcast and I look forward to checking it out. Thanks again for all of your time today, Dr. Chidamate. All right, thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask. This is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. It really helps. Until next time, take care.